0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Language. I'm John Weston and today I'll be talking with Catherine Woolard about her 2016 book Singular and Plural Ideologies of Linguistic Authority in 21st Century Catalonia. Catherine Willard is Professor Emerita and Research Professor of Anthropology at the University of California, San Diego. She has authored seminal works on language ideology and the sociolinguistic situation in Catalonia, including the present book, Singular and Plural Ideologies of Linguistic Authority in 21st Century Catalonia, which won the 2017 Society for Linguistic Anthropology Edward Sapir Book Prize. Kit, thank you very much for making the time to be here today this book brings together two of your main areas of interest. Uh, Can you explain a bit about what those interests are and how this book came about?
1: Um, I certainly will try. First, I want to say thank you very much. It's a pleasure to have this opportunity, and I I thank you for inviting me. You're right. the, The book is about two principal topics that have been my topics for a long time. The first one is the sociolinguistic situation and really more the politics of language and identity in Catalonia. I think probably by now, just about anybody who might listen to this knows where Catalonia is and some of what's going on. It is a, 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 a northeast area of uh, Spain. It, one has to be careful whether even to say the word region. Uh, every word is loaded. Uh, it is now a, a politically autonomous community within Spain. And it regained that status, which it had had um, prior to the Spanish Civil War and lost in that in the Franco period. It regained that status of political autonomy in 1979, which I was fortunate enough to, um, it was a time when I was there, just beginning my dissertation fieldwork in 1979, the end of the year. So that's almost 40 years now, and that has been my ethnographic site, my empirical case, that's been fascinating to watch evolve um, across these 40 years. So it comes principally out of that, um, that research thread. But in addition, the main more general and theoretical uh, theme of the book is the topic of ideologies of language. And that's an as sort of an um, a area of focus within linguistic anthropology um, that uh, coalesced in the early 1990s. And I was privileged to be part of that, um, sort of helping to set an agenda for research in linguistic anthropology. And I've tried to explore that in a, a systematic way in relation to the politics of Catalonia uh, in this book.
0: Okay. Thanks very much for setting that out. So so language ideology um, is a concept that many of our readers will be familiar with, but I'd like to kind of make sure that everyone's on board. So, I mean, a, a, a simple outline of it to my mind is that it refers to um, a system of beliefs about language, where language can take on characteristics or it can it can somehow act as a proxy for society. So you might express an idea about language, but really you're expressing something about people or the way that society's set up um is, is that accurate in the catalan context um for example where you've got the national majority language being castilian spanish um is it the case that the use of catalan has been um sort of denigrated in a way to oppress catalonians and to to keep them in, in their place or am I being too simplistic? Um,
1: that's a complex set of ideas that you've put out, and I'll try to, um, to take them. It's an excellent start, and I'll try to um, take them um, a, a bit separately. One, the general question of what do we mean by language ideology or ideologies, which is always better um, to try to think in the plural problem. We try to. Um, and then to talk about its application to Catalonia. I think your your general loss on the idea of language ideologies is an excellent start, and it certainly captures one of my favorite favorite. favorite quotes about language, which is the literary theorist uh, Raymond Williams, a British literary theorist who wrote something like, um, a definition of language is always implicitly or explicitly a definition of people in the world. And I think that's what you're getting at. Mm. The um, sort of shorthand consensus definition of uh, language ideology in the field of linguistic anthropology now is sort of something like that it's, um, we mean politically and morally loaded representations of both the structure and functioning of language in a social world. Uh, And that is uh, peoples, folk, experts, whoever, uh, their representations of language and how it works, you know, and also how it ought to work. There is always an ought uh, to any ideological formulation. And the idea of studying linguistic ideologies or language ideologies is that they are, Um, To be understood to be actually consequential for the shape and functioning of language, right down to small structures, and for social relations. So the only thing that I would hesitate on in the uh, rendition that you've offered is um, the the word proxy, Uh, that language is a proxy for the people. And of course, that is what's implicit in Raymond Williams' definition, for example. Mm -hmm. And often it is true that we can look and see almost painfully, obviously, uh, language being treated as a proxy for the speakers, the way the language is treated as a proxy for the way the speakers are treated. So if you think of something like African-American vernacular English, the nonstandard variety in the United States associated with uh, some, but not all, many, the majority of African-American speakers, there have uh, been recurrent outbreaks of uh, panic uh, in the United States in the schools over um, the thought that African-American vernacular language might be used in schools and that that is seen as absolutely inappropriate. There would be a debate in the 90s was the last big instance of that. And that's a case where we look and we say, yes, by marginalizing the language variety in the schools, by refusing to recognize it and allow it to be um, seen as legitimate in, for school purposes, we clearly are marginalizing the speakers of that, further marginalizing them uh, educationally. But a lot of times, it's not that the links are not that obvious and direct. And I wouldn't want to think of a one-to-one substitution, which is almost a sort of a base superstructure model, right, of ideology and how it works. And the point of the study of linguistic ideologies is to explore the more indirect links Semiotic links um, that are created through language ideologies, by which indeed the language ideology does have social effects, but they are not always the ones that we expect. They're not always predictable, and they work through different semiotic mechanisms, that is, different sign um, uh, functions, different ways of signaling meaning, which is an important part of the study of linguistic ideology, particularly as um, many foundational ideas were established by Michael Silverstein at the University of Chicago, which traces various kinds of relationships, particularly indexical, where the language sign points to something in the context, but is not a one-to-one analog or homolog uh, to that. So for some examples of that, I want to say, so something like uh, the use of parts of African American vernacular English by non African Americans. Um, AV, as I, miss the shorthand I use uh, for that, is, as we know, very, very uh, important in mediatized popular culture. It has a lot of cachet. Young whites in America, uh, young people of all kinds of racial orientations and um, uh, uh, backgrounds around the world, like to mobilize uh, elements from so-called Black English, right, in, in hip-hop culture. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems like a celebration, and in many cases it is, of Av. We wouldn't want to think that um, the white use of Av rehabilitates Av speakers themselves, because uh, it doesn't. Right. Uh, and also, some of the more sophisticated work in, um, uh, in the topic of linguistic ideologies shows argues at least, and I think sometimes shows very convincingly, how those white uses of av, for example, are forms of condescension that actually further lock in the stigmatization of av. Yes, it's used transgressively for its transgressive value, but that precisely reattaches and attaches with greater strength all of the stigma uh, that is associated with that. The same thing has been argued for the use of Spanish by Anglos in the United States. Jane Hill
0: uh, has
1: done work on what she calls mock Spanish, where it looks like, oh, it's friendly and warm and delightful and funny, and we're celebrating uh, uh, multiculturalism by importing some Spanish into our English. Hill argues that that may be the direct intention of speakers, but that it trades on ideological um, associations of Spanish with very pejorative, demeaning uh, senses. And that it actually then has the effect of reinforcing it, that that is not a serious language because those are not serious people, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera. So the the links between language ideology and the people can be very complex and not have quite the direct um, uh, effects that we might expect if we treat it as a one-to-one substitution, which is precisely why even if you rehabilitate and bring, say, Av into the schools, it would be a mistake to think, that that is a direct force that has remediated the position of, uh, improved the position of speakers sure. in schools. I could give you a lot more examples. So there's some nice ones from 17th century Spain that I've worked on about the ways that, that the links are very unexpected and not so direct. But I'll I'll leave it at that to turn to your question about Catalonia.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I'd like to know whether the Catalonian situation is semiotically removed from the, the version that I presented, where there's some kind of other way of indexing something uh, through the use of Catalan. Or I, I get the impression that you're saying that Catalan is not really held as the kind of the poor relation of Castilian Spanish, in the same way that Av is held as the poor relation of. Standard American English.
1: Yeah, um, that. Okay, so it's, it is very complicated in Catalonia, uh, and I think you've grasped a lot of the the, the nuances. Um, certainly, the proxy model. Um, I'll call it that, which a lot of people who defend minority languages hold, the idea that we must protect minority language speakers' rights. It is often motivated by a belief that this is how we protect the minority speakers who are oppressed. And in this sort of base superstructure, sort of oversimplifying model, you're oppressed if you're oppressed economically. Possibly you're oppressed if you're oppressed uh, politically in a way that strips you of you know any representation and democratic rights. But it, the major concern is the um, the, the suffering slot, as um, Joel Robbins and others have called it in anthropology. That what anthropology looks at is the those who are suffering, the suffering slot, and you focus your efforts on that. Um, And the idea that, well, protect the language in order to protect the poor and oppressed. And people get to the Catalan case and say, whoops, that doesn't look and feel like that. Hmm. So can we say that Spanish um, language policy, the language policy of Spain over centuries, over recent decades, can we say that it has been uh, a form of oppression of the Catalan people? Because it has systematically minoritized and marginalized uh, Catalan in the public sphere, and I want to add, by the way, people will say, very many people say, "Well, but Catalan now is official in Catalonia," so it's that's no longer true. I just want to mention that is not a good reading of the current situation. It is true that Catalan is co-official in Catalonia, and elsewhere in the Catalan-speaking territories, but it is only co-official. And the constitution um, specifies that everyone has an obligation to know and use Castilian, as Spanish is known, but only a right to use Catalan in Catalonia. So they're unequal mm-hmm. even within Catalonia. But moreover, uh, Spain, has, Spain itself as a state uh, is entirely monolingual. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are, there is no representation or right of use of any of the other languages of Spain within any part of the Spanish state. So it is still marginalized in that political sense. Um, is this oppressive? Yes. If you think of linguistic oppression in and of itself uh, as a form of oppression, which I think we should, it is not a proxy for other rights. It ought to to be a right in and of itself, I would think, then yes. Uh, Does it index political marginalization? I would say yes, Um, ongoing as well as a long history of it. Does that mean economic oppression? No. Mm -hmm. Catalonia is a very unusual case. Uh, around the world but particularly in Europe there's very few others like it where you have a separation perhaps of the history of political power and economic power Um, and Catalonia has been was the 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 engine of the industrial revolution in Spain it's been an economic leader and it still is which is why it is such a bone of contention now and why Spain doesn't in any way want to let it go because it is still uh, the econo- one of the principal economic engines. That has meant that Catalans themselves, um, people, um, autochthonous Catalans and native speakers, etc., cetera, um, tend to be associated with the middle to uh, higher, not the highest classes in Catalonia, and reasonably well off. This is true. So this is a case which shows us that you know it's not a direct one-to-one correlation. Catalan was marginalized. People weren't allowed to study it in the schools. It was not used in the media. You could not read in it, et cetera, et cetera, at least for four decades. Uh, well, that's a bit mythic as a number, but roughly for four decades and history before that. Uh, and yet, it did not lead to the economic marginalization of Catalans. However, it is still associated with the political marginalization. Interestingly, how is it viewed? I think Catalan, certainly if you read the the trolls at the bottom of the pages of all the um, uh, online posts these days, you will see a lot of denigration of Catalan as not a real language, merely a dialect, um, barking, all the terrible things. There are those views, uh, but in general, um, there is... Recognition that Catalan is um a standardized language it has been since early in the twentieth century uh usable for all purposes and associated with relatively high Socioeconomic prestige, so you don't have the same kind of denigration that you get in other places.
0: Yeah, so it's viewed—it's not viewed as a deficient language. It,
1: there are folk views that of that. There is a sort of a sense, and this is what um, much of the book addresses: that, all right, well, it's language, but a sort of a, let's be serious here. This is from the Spanish viewpoint. Spanish is a big language. Uh, Spanish is a world language. It is a universal language, and Catalan, well, is merely, and I'm putting all this in quotes, a local language. It is Mm. restricted to its value for the local people to mark their what I call authenticity. That's Yes, we'll grant it its authenticity value for Mm. some folks, but you don't expect us to speak in it, and you can't, you know, why use that for broader purposes? Everyone speak Spanish the what I call anonymous universal language that view is very 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 widespread and that is part of the problem that is the problem that I address in several of the chapters of the book
0: yeah I think it's linked to um, what you say in the in 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 the preface about wanting to correct a bias in in the public record and uh, the the public record being a primary site of this um, this treatment of spanish as the as the default language um the, which you refer to as the banal nationalism of already existing nation states um, can you say a bit about what you mean by the public record and its role here in in producing and reproducing language ideology linked to nationalism
1: Yes, thank you um, the first thing I want to do is give credit for the term banal nationalism, which I did find very useful, and that of course mm. uh, um is used uh, by Michael Billig, a social psychologist, uh, and right. has a book on that topic, banal nationalism. And by that, of course, we mean it's, it is nationalism, but it's the kind you don't even notice. Uh, it's mm. so, um, the context uh, is so saturated with the uh, signs of the nation that they're taken for granted and not counted as nationalism. Um, just as an example, outside of Catalonia, Uh, In the U.S., I don't know if you're aware over there as much as we are here in the U.S., the recent uh, uproar over our football players, our American football players, the NFL uh, players, mostly of color, but um, many, uh, taking a knee uh, during the playing of the national anthem at the beginning of football games, kneeling down, which caused, you know, Utter outrage. But the mm. interesting question is what, what, why are we playing the anthem anyway? It's almost yeah. not noticed that that has been incorporated into every sporting event in the US, which mm. is a very odd thing, but it's precisely that banality that simply saturates everyday activity that you don't notice it until something's gone wrong. Mm. So So it's that kind of nationalism that um, the already established, the Westphalian sort of nation states uh, have the privilege of trading in all the time without Mm. it being noticed and criticized as nationalism Mm. or nationalistic. Um, And that kind of view is purveyed, I think, quite unconsciously. It, can, it really is quite doxic. It is doxa. It is something that we just accept, a very hegemonic idea. Again, Raymond Williams said, hegemony is the saturation of consciousness that, that so deep that you don't, you don't recognize it at all. And I think our mainstream media uh, are saturated with that view. And that's, part of, that's the main thing I mean by the public record. So I'm thinking of, um, well, certainly for the United States, the epitome of our mainstream media would be the New York Times. And mm-hmm. the New York Times systematically uh, has uh, represented uh, the conflict, the political conflict over the last couple of years from the point of view of Madrid, which singles out Catalan nationalism and subjects it to criticism from a sort of a liberal cosmopolitan point of view, which is mm-hmm. both a kind of common educated layperson and social scientific view of nationalism, is that it's it, at most, you know, at best, it's. Suspect and distasteful, and you know, reactionary, parochial, etc. Yeah, but that view is attached to Catalan and Catalonia by our media, and not to Spain and Spain's policies and Spain's responses. I see the mm. same thing, and I don't read as much of the British press, but I see I see the Economist on the one side. I see the Guardian quite a bit, and the Guardian does a little better. But we see this same kind of taken for grantedness mm-hmm. of Spain, of Spanish as a language to be used institutionally, and a constant questioning and skepticism about um, Catalan. This happens for a few reasons. One, because I do think it's toxic. It is the, uh, the educated liberal point of view in both senses of liberal. So if you've got the, the economist uh, endorsing it often, as well as the Guardian. Right. So it's partly that. It is also because, it's just in a practical sense, reporting in our world uh, is filtered through the capitals of the existing nation states. So the reporters are based, in this case, in Madrid. Uh, and that's who they talk to, um, is the politicians and all from Madrid, what comes from Catalonia secondhand. So, again, the public record is um, this this bias towards accepting uh Spanish nationalism um, is reinforced simply by the, the practicalities of the way publishing and reporting gets done, which kind of harks back to Benedict Anderson on imagined communities and how much they were created. The nation as an imagined community was created and relied upon particular forms of print media and their practical interest infrastructures. So the newspapers, and I think we see the same thing living on even online. And I, I wanted to give an example again from the Guardian of what I mean by this, um, this banal nationalism, this, this okay. saturation so that we, we can sort of see it everywhere where you get a critique of um, Catalan nationalism quite explicitly and Spanish nationalism is not even visible uh, and is given a pass. Um, so there was an article a few years ago in the Guardian that connected transnational immigration to Spain and the then burgeoning Catalan sovereignty movement as problems. And I'll just read you a quote because I really like it. I'll take it apart afterwards, but I really like it. The Guardian reported, the influx of millions of immigrants into Spain over the past decade has transformed parts of Catalonia too, complicating the separatist picture and fanning the uglier side of nationalist rhetoric. I have a comment on that, but let me go on. Um, The biggest single group by nationality is from Romania, followed by Morocco, Ecuador, and Great Britain, the Guardian writes. Those in Catalonia face an immediate problem, the language. This has put pressure on the education system as immigrant children have to learn Catalan before they can be taught anything else. So what's wrong with this picture? There's two things wrong with this picture. One, the Guardian has told us that the biggest groups by nationality are from Romania, Morocco, and Great Britain, as well as Ecuador. I believe that children from Romania, Morocco, and Great Britain would, all, would have to learn Spanish in the school system before they could learn anything else. In other mm-hmm. words, exactly the same as Catalan. Yet that is completely invisible. I assume this is a well-meaning Uh, reporter, Spanish as a language is completely invisible as if it were just anonymously something that everyone already has Um, Mm. and not an issue. But Catalan stands out. It's Mm. a problem because it doesn't have that same, it has a different base uh, for its uh, legitimacy in Mm. the minds of the reporters, you know, Mm. as opposed to the banal legitimacy of Spanish as an anonymous part of the background. The other thing I want to say is there was just an automatic assumption that the um, immigration fans the uglier side of nationalist rhetoric. Nothing was cited uh, to support that. And in fact, Mm -hmm. the Catalan sovereignty movement has been very self-consciously pro-immigration, if anything, Mm -hmm. not xenophobic, not exclusionist, not anti-immigration. And in fact, in recent Catalan politics, it is the representative of the, the candidates from the uh, popular party, which is the center right party or fairly right party that governs Spain. Uh, the candidates from that party in Catalonia were the ones um, who used anti-immigrant uh, rhetoric. So there's mm-hmm. that, that is just, again, one of those assumptions that uh, a small nationalism must be xenophobic yeah uh, and with no evidence, so those are some examples of this kind of banal nationalism that is accepted not just within the nation state in question, but worldwide that grants a kind of a pass that this is uh, normal and expected and not not noticeable and not a form of nationalism, while uh, uh, there's no equivalency. Um, uh, the smaller um, would-be nations are singled out for their suspect and retrograde apparently retrograde nationalism.
0: Right. And, and um, it's probably a good time to mention that you've got a, a blog post out for the Open University Press that that really untangles and separates this kind of um, bad nationalism, the kind of Brexit, Trump, you know, that that kind of nationalism, uh, the kind of nationalism that that apparently is in the mind of the journalist here that you quoted from The Guardian, that, that's assuming that, that the Catalonian movement is going for the same kind of isolationist, parochial, xenophobic um form of nationalism and you make that quite clear in your blog post and you have just now but there'll be a link for that on the on the web page where this podcast can be downloaded from
1: okay i'll just mention that's oxford university press yeah sorry um, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> they, they'll
0: like it if i say Oxford. <laughs> <so>. <laughs> yeah oxford yeah. university press yeah i mean that links to m- my following question was whether as um, an individual researcher you've been tied to this locus of ethnographic work for your entire academic career and whether this book constituted a chance to give back to participants that you've known through that time. Um, but also, you've taken on this unfair representation in in the global media of the situation in Catalonia and that your book can serve as a corrective to that. So that that's going to filter through via intellectual channels and but you've been personally and directly on the site explaining these ideas to people so i don't know if you could talk a bit about personally what it's like to to be someone linked to that place for for 40 years and to now be putting this work at, at this time given your length of commitment to the place
1: yeah oh thank you for asking that um i should say that you know i have been working there a long time it's not the only place i work at, sure uh, but it, it has been absolutely. I'm very highly identified with it, and I'm, I'm personally identified with it. And uh, the Catalan case, I have always been a Catalan sympathizer. I guess I've always been, I guess, enamored of Catalan, the language, the culture, the sense of humor, the I just, and Barcelona, of course, um, uh, which is where I do most of my work. Um, but I've always been reserved about being Catalanist, mm-hmm. and I am not uh, not a critic. Catalanism ever historically, but also not uh, not uh, uh, an activist, not a partisan and I've always positioned my work um, in a sympathetic but non partisan way or at least try you know mm-hmm. I've tried to do that um, partly because i don't only work with with people who identify as Catalan um, uh, from the very beginning I have been very interested in um, the Castilian speakers of Catalonia. Um, I'm not sure if people are aware, but at this point, you can think of it as sort of almost 50-50. It's actually less than that. There are fewer autochthonous descendants of uh, people born in Catalonia who are native speakers of Catalan, they're only about a third of the population now. This is a country of very, very high immigration, a long history of uh, immigration under conditions in which, of course, there wasn't going to be very high integration into the linguistic community, et cetera, because of the political repression. So we shorthand people think of it as 50-50, but really in in sort of ethno-linguistic terms, Only about a third of the population is of uh, autochthonous native speaking Catalan origins and the other um, um, percentages are are of some kind of immigrant descent. Uh, People are much more native born now, but we're we're looking at children of, for the most part, working class uh, immigrants, labor immigrants from the south uh, and other areas of Spain that are quite impoverished. And that was a massive uh, influx of people. Um, in the um, mid to uh, late um, 20th century that I was very, very interested in. Um, And they were very heavily Castilian-identified when I began my work in the 70s and 80s. And I wanted to see how they saw themselves and how they thought about themselves and what their linguistic realities and realities of identity were. And I was, for my first book, which I guess was finally published in 89, but it came out of my dissertation research, one of the things I was most proud of is that another sociolinguist um, on meeting me said he enjoyed my book, particularly because it presented a sympathetic picture of both linguistic groups. Mm. And that's always been my goal, and it continues to be. With the people that I work with on the ground, my you know informants, as we call them in anthropology. Um, but this time, with this book, I did move out further in front to develop, I hope not an uncritical view, but a sympathetic view of the current Catalan sovereignty movement and Catalanism in general. And I did that for three reasons. I took this stand and I tried to, I made it explicit, I guess, I don't know whether it's in my foreword or preface or someplace, but I made it explicit that I was writing from a somewhat different point of view to make greater sympathy and uh, to perhaps Uh, Going softer on uh, critique um, than one might in other conditions, but mostly um, to have a a critical sympathy. I did it for three reasons. One, the political atmosphere in Spain. And even as early as the 1990s, when the popular party first, the first round of popular party rule of Spain, uh, with uh, uh, Jose Maria Aznar uh, as president. Uh, in the early nineties, I was shocked at that time by the change in tone of anti-Catalanism mm. in Spain, not in Catalonia. Most of this comes from the rest of Spain uh, and from Madrid. It was shocking to me uh, how virulent it had become. I only go back, you know, once in a while, and when I went back again for this the last bout of research, that's the main field work under this last book, which was in uh, two thousand seven. Mm. I the Partido Popular the Popular Party was again uh ruling Spain and it was the same uh not perhaps quite as vitriolic and vicious but concerted vehement anti-catalanism uh couched often in terms of critiques of, of Catalan's narrowness and uh, and laudatory of Spain's openness and cosmopolitan mm. and universalist outlook etc. Um, And this was uh, a position that's taken up not just by the right-wing popular party, but the Spanish socialists i have always been very centrist, Jacobin, and take a very similar position. Um, There is tremendous corruption. There is tremendous um, politicization of the courts. There is a really in many ways dysfunctional political system in Spain. And much of this is being covered over by, you know, the vehemence directed against Catalonia. Uh is a great distractor um from the corruption scandals and trials that are going on now uh against um popular party figures. So that shock and seeing that consistent tone and that vehemence and that what I see is really a um uh uh using, you know, people are simply um, instrumentalizing the Catalan case for political purposes. Uh, And now the violence and authoritarianism uh, is added to that. Um, These are things that made me want to sort of take a stronger and more explicit stance. So that was one thing, the local, the Spanish uh, political context. The second thing is when I was writing the book, uh, I began it in to seriously uh, treat it as a book rather than a set of different articles when I had the privilege to be a fellow at the Netherlands Institute for Advanced Studies in uh, the Netherlands. And that was terrific. And I was surrounded by interesting people, well-educated, informed fellows. And I, again, was kind of shocked at the general Northern European uh, antagonism to anything that got labeled as nationalism. And I should say a lot of Catalan sovereignists, Catalan independentistas do not see themselves as nationalists Mm. because of the baggage that carries. Mm. They don't see that uh, kind of position at all. But that's how it's labeled. And the vehemence with which that is rejected out of hand, particularly by German uh, colleagues uh, for good reasons, historically. uh, But other Northern European colleagues made me realize, oh, I I need to be more explicit here uh, about how this should be under how I believe this should be understood, and that it is not the kind of nationalism with all the associations of uh, the Northern League, the National Front, the uh, you know Orbán, et cetera, et cetera. These are not of a piece mm-hmm. with what is happening mm-hmm. in Catalonia. So that was the second was the sort of a, uh, this banal nation, nationalism, if you like, the acceptance of Spain but not of Catalonia mm-hmm. in the educated world. Um, as well as in the mass media and then finally the third thing that really gave me permission to take a more Catalanist explicit Catalanist uh, stance was my actual my own informants and I think as you know I reported on it in the last part of the book one of the um, research methods I used was is uh, to work in schools and sit in classrooms and sit on the patio at break time and all day after day after day uh, in high schools and uh, one technique I used this time was to go back and try to locate um, the informants from a high school study I had done 20 years before. Yeah. So they were 14 the last time I saw them, and they were 34. And I tracked them, and they were still 14 years yeah. old in my head. <laughs> so it was really something to see them as these mature young adults, 34 very interesting people. I managed to, to re-interview about a dozen of mm. them. And I was astonished. I was amazed by their own changes, which they were so proud of and so happy to tell me about. And I focused primarily on the children, the working class children of um, immigrants from the South of Spain. And when I had seen them in high school, a lot of their parents were unemployed. It was a very bad period. And they were not users of Catalan. They were not fluent fluent in it. Uh, they were quite uh, nervous and resentful. They were, They were quite resolutely monolingual and castilian identified mm-hmm. and oriented and 20 years later they told me how things are different when you grow up <laughs> um and that they had grown up and they were very really proud of it And they themselves were more open and a sign of their openness was that they had learned and could use and did use uh Catalan. Mm-hmm. and they explained to me how um, people misunderstood um the, the relations between the groups and the languages. Mm. And their change of heart really gave me heart um, to go ahead and and put it out there, a, a much more sympathetic uh, uh, understanding of, of the Catalan uh, situation and the movement. Mm. Mm. And as I think um, you'll see in the blog post, I've been in touch with, I sent them copies of the book with some trepidation, but I'm sure nobody's really read the whole thing through. Um, although there is one of the informants, actually, uh, majored in anthropology at the university oh <laughs> and yes and he oh he's wonderful he's absolutely wonderful and he if he's listening um and he lives in england so his english is perfect and so he can read the book so we'll find out if he ever gets a chance but i've been in touch with them and i was really again um really struck uh, uh, some of them wrote me um, around the politics of the referendum starting in September, October. And one of them, I call her Elena in the book, um, was one who had had the, she's got the strongest voice among those in the book. She was really striking in her ability to reflect on and comment on her change of heart and her move from being a, a very heavily Castilian identified and functionally monolingual in high school to being uh, bilingual And proud of it, and claims that she uses Catalan a lot. And she wrote me, so she was one of the voices that let me, you know, put out this position more explicitly. But and I was, I don't know, relieved or or touched, moved, I guess, uh, when she wrote me in the fall how excited and concerned she was about uh, the referendum. Mm -hmm and she wrote, I won't quote the whole thing, it is on the blog post, but she says that it it hurts her that uh, Spain misunderstands Catalan society, and she says, it hurts me. I was born in Catalonia of Andalusian parents who immigrated in 1966. I've always felt Catalan in Spanish, but now I'm being hurt because of the, the way Spain looks at and talks about Um, Catalonia. She said, Catalan society is very open and has always been based on respect and solidarity. And after the police violence against Mm. would-be voters on the October 1st referendum, which was really quite shocking, Mm. she wrote to me and she said, my own opinion is on the side of my nation, Catalonia, Mm. which is quite a striking transformation from um, the the girl that I Mm. knew when she was 14. So that's part of that's what's behind um, my change of, of position.
0: Did it take you 10 years to, sorry to say it like that, but did it take you 10 years <laughs> to kind of make peace with that idea of, um, you know, a, 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 understand the impact of her transition or you know if she was like so powerful in, in pushing you to be, yeah, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it this way uh, or, or whether she was kind of in, in indicative of a wider phenomenon in the group of people that you followed up or...
1: That's a good question. I don't know um, exactly when I came to that. It always takes anthropologists 10 years to do anything, <laughs> it seems like. And it, I cannot blame it on, you know, it, it doesn't have to do with my journey through okay. uh, moral and political positioning. It just has to do with how long it takes to do anything. Okay. But it did take me mm, eight years or Seven or six, you know, and also once, even once you've said it and done it and written it, it's still another two years before the thing yeah. appears in material and textualized form. But it did take me a while before I saw it as a book. Hmm. I was writing art. Much of this uh, has been uh, mulled and some of it explained in earlier forms in articles. And... Um, what made me realize it should be a book was that same stay at, uh, in the Netherlands at the Institute for Advanced Studies and talking to people and realizing that the story needed to be told as a whole story. Mm. Um, rather, Before, I had been working on the base of my earlier book and work and thinking, well, I'll just add uh, chapters, pieces, and articles to it. But I understood that I, when I heard what was coming from my would-be audience, I thought, oh, I do need to tell a whole story. And that was just about the same time that the um, uh, independence movement had really started Mm. to burst onto the public scene and really develop and take on grassroots weight. uh, Mm. That's mixing metaphors, but strength, (laughs) of course, which started in 2012. And Mm. the story kind of got ahead of me, uh, I realized that this was a story and not simply another chapter in the evolution of language policy in Catalonia, which is how I'd started, and that there was a new story. There was a kind of a new bookend or, or a new opening, even uh, taking away the bookend with Catalan independence. So in a sense, I guess it was Elena, but it was a whole lot of Elenas that made me right. realize that um, there is there is a hole here that is bigger than the sum of its parts, and I should, you should tell it.
0: I want to ask you about how you decided to, you know, how you organized the book anyway. So, I mean, um, you start off, it's in three parts. You start off with a theoretical and empirical overview. Uh, Then there's a section looking at at the changing discourses related to language in Catalan media. And then you end with a a section on changing discourses related to what you call personal life. Um, Can you explain a bit about... uh, yeah, a bit more detail about what each section in the book does and why you arranged it that way as well. Hmm.
1: Okay, I can try. Um, I guess the first thing to say <clears throat> is that in all my work, I've, in all my work in Catalonia at least, and in all my teaching, I've always tried to um, link the different what we now call scales uh, of sociolinguistic phenomena or social life. Um, so I have always said that I work on um, the politics of language and then immediately say, and by that I mean both institutional politics and interpersonal politics. And what I'm most interested in is trying to see how they link up, and just as with the other things having to do with language ideology, it's not always directly, uh, but we know that institutional policies of any kind, but certainly language policies, don't just come directly out of people's mouths. You know, mm-hmm. um, Institutions cannot force people, well, uh, they can in some levels, but in this way, uh, at this level, they can't force people to take up their policies in all the ways intended. And what I'm always interested in is how, I guess maybe it's the trickle down, but how people take them up and remake through their own reflection, their own response, their own uh, evaluation of the, the values that are set for languages through institutional policies. They reinstantiate re-inst- these in their own ways in their interpersonal practices and by the same token institutions have to be responsive at some level uh to what people are actually doing so i I try to work across the scales and and see the links and that is what i was trying to do in this book which which makes it kind of long and uh means it incorporates a lot of very different kinds of material different Mm. methods different techniques um how did i organize it um I guess the way I always, I think of it is organized the way I always organize things, which is just my form of Western
0: uh,
1: essayist literacy, as it's called in the linguistic anthrop business, which is to start with the general and work down to the mm. more particular. Mm. So the first section um, tries to accomplish two tasks, and I try to first of all uh, frame the book and the inquiry in the book in terms of uh, ideologies of language. And particularly um, uh, the ideologies of language, um, of linguistic authority, mm-hmm. of linguistic authority and the public sphere right? yeah. and the public sort of what what are the bases, what are the foundations of legitimacy um that give languages the the power to persuade people, the power to convince institutions Hmm. uh, their legitimacy in the public sphere. So I try to start with that as a general frame, and Catalonia is a specific case of that. And I draw on, and I hope, speak to, have something to offer um, to other cases around the world. I actually found it very instructive to look at um, Javanese language ideology as described by um, my colleague Joe Arrington and others. And one of my students, um, Alicia Snyder Fry, worked on Hawaiian, the Hawaiian Revival Movement. And that's very instructive too for a different way of looking at what's the the basis of authority, whether anonymity or authenticity or other basis of authority for language. So the first task, it seemed to me, was to set up that general frame Mm -hmm. that would be used. Uh, And there I set out the... um, principal ideologies that are at work in this case and in the cases of the mo- of Western modernity, we could say, which um, as ideologies of linguistic authority, um, we've dubbed anonymity and authenticity, which would need some explanation. We'll do that later, maybe. Uh, and I borrowed that set from work I had done with my colleague, Susan Gao. And a group of uh, colleagues earlier around, I don't know, 2000, 2001, we published a book on a collection on language and publics and um, anonymity and authenticity as these sort of two poles of linguistic authority under modernity uh, were the basis. And I found that very useful for thinking through the Catalan case and for um, fitting in with others. I also take up something I call an ideology of sociolinguistic naturalism, which um, I saw at work. It, it, it's uh it draws on earlier work on linguistic naturalism by people like John Joseph. Um, uh, but it's a, it's a bit uh, newer to me and newer, the, the the brand I try to make of it. So I try to set those out. And then I turn to the an overview of the Catalan case, just to introduce people to where it came from and uh, what are some of the major operating forces, both the institutional forces, the politics and the political structure. Um but also um, try to give evidence on the, trend, the continuities and transformations in these linguistic ideologies of authority that are come into play as you move into the um, proto-independence period,? Right? And then, then, then 2006, uh, when I started that research, is actually when you had the first um, public um, uh, events uh, organized organized around the theme, the right to decide. Which is how um, the sovereignty movement has been framed. Hmm. So that fieldwork was a proto period there, and I try to capture that. So then in parts two and three, I move into the ethnographic um, context um, from 2006 7, and then drawing on some short return visits and the internet a lot uh, that runs through data from about 2014. And I moved from, I guess, from the general theoretical and historical frame, to the public sphere, the media, and mediatized discourses uh, of language and the language ideologies that are are so so often so highlighted uh, when there are debates and conflicts. And that's what I looked at as conflictive or um, uh, much debated or discussed uh, moments. We have three chapters there Mm -hmm. of events that I, I witnessed the Um, debates. Um, Two of them were elite debates, elite culture. I'm sure the folk couldn't have told you very much about them, but they were waged. They were battles waged in the newspapers and the mass media. One of them was a battle over uh, who should speak at a Barcelona municipal festival. And Mm -hmm. uh, someone from Madrid who certainly couldn't speak Catalan and had a very Castilianist point of view uh, was invited to be the speaker. And that raised all kinds of trouble, which brought out debates over legitimacy mm-hmm. that really mm-hmm. helped um, highlight, h- helped me bring out this um, tension between mm-hmm. this sort of off- local authenticity, if you like, um, and the pluses and minuses of that, and claims to universalism or cosmopolitanism as it was played out. And the second debate was uh, in the global stage, uh, and that was uh, about uh, language that should be represented and work, uh, literary work that should be represented at the international the Frankfurt Book Fair, which is the biggest trade fair in the media, I guess very well established in Frankfurt, Germany, and that was a debate that went on over three and a half years. Um, again, prosecuting the question of uh, what language Catalan and or Castilian, um, what should be represented, uh, how do they represent and relate to Catalonia and Catalan culture. So those are elite debates. The third one that I looked at, which actually is the most fun, and I guess I start with that, um, was a, a, a sort of a, a lot of public talk and popular talk around a comedy show, a humor show, political humor, um, and other humorous representations of the very, very poor Catalan speech of hmm. the new president of Catalonia who was elected in well was selected in 2006. Jose Montilla, who was an immigrant uh, from the south of Spain uh, himself, he had come at age 16, he lived there 30 some years, and probably had not spoken much Catalan, um, as was evident. But he used Catalan in. Uh, his political work um, Mm. as president and uh, it in many ways was what let let us say it was highly marked as Castilian origin. There were a lot of outright mistakes and there were also issues of phonetic um, accent and et cetera. There's a lot of humor around that. And that also was very useful for highlighting um, uh, tensions, concerns, fears, uh, hopes, ideologies of language, about the place of language and being Catalan, the place of, you know, native speakers, whose language is it? What does it mean to speak it? How do you have to speak it? All those things were um, um prosecuted, but largely through humor. Uh, right. Which is, to me, has long been, that's a, a thing I've looked at, you know, if you want to know a language situation uh what's going on sort of there a good thing is to look at what people laugh at about language mm-hmm. what they think mm-hmm. they can laugh at out loud and what mm-hmm. they laugh at privately or in unsigned mm-hmm. emails etc so i've used that technique before and i found it very useful and i saw you know, irony and humor irony to uh, uh, distancing and ironic distancing from criticism and concerns about the language uh mm-hmm. Irony turned on the Catalan language itself, which was no longer sort of the sacred treasure of Catalonia, but rather something that's open to all. And mm. all are going to use it. If they're going to use it, they're going to use it in these ways that transgress uh, against mm. normative language. And that was dealt with through humor, I think, very effectively um, on the television show, in particular, Polonia, it's called, which is a, a treasure of Catalan television. Um <laughs> It's great. And, and interestingly, this is a case of that where you can't, you know, you can't be sure what you're going to get from, you know, language ideologically, uh, from certain practices or representations or comments on language. Um, and Polonia um, presented ridiculous hyperbolic um, versions of Montilla's um speech, um, ways that he would never talk himself, but they were just absurd, uh, but very, we could say on the one hand, very critical uh, of his uh, limited control of Catalan, but the upshot of the show, it was agreed um, by almost all commentators, um, was that the show had a great effect on his public um, reception. It really warmed him up, and people developed an affection for Monti, the president, through their affection for Montilla, the bumbling, poorly speaking mm. uh, character on the show.
0: Right. So the so the show was uh, w- mediated that change in public perception.
1: Yes, I think it is fair to say oh, yeah. that. I, certainly, there's plenty of commentary to that effect, and also among my informants and all, I kind of anecdotally um, confirmed that. But yeah, because mm. Montilla himself was a um, very. He was just. He was a party one might, but there are, I, I'll try not to use unflattering terms, but he is non-charismatic, simply not charismatic, not a good speaker, even in Castilian, uh, very gray in in all ways, uh, not warm, very cold person. He His image was warmed up tremendously. Um, he handled it well, as is necessary for so many politicians these days to handle uh, the parodies of them uh, well, because this is a common ploy now, of course. Uh, he handled it well, and that also contributed.
0: The two ideas you've already introduced in, in some detail. So I just wondered if we could tie those up before you go on to, the, to explain the rest of the book. The model that you said you used um, about authority and how, how it relates to your what you call ideological complexes of authenticity and anonymity. Mm-hmm. And that they have this kind of common origin or taproot, as you say, in naturalism. Mm-hmm. To be able to say a bit more about that and then how that links up with what you've just been saying about this ironic or, or parodic representations of Catalan mm. as well.
1: Mm. Okay, let's, okay, let me start with the um, ideologies of authority, just briefly to, to, to recap what those are. So um, uh, when we talk about authority, I'm talking about this sort of legitimacy this power um uh, persuasive power in in people's eyes and ears um Mm -hmm. and this i distinguish um, this from uh, authority from power as is typically done right and this is Mm -hmm. a question this authority the ideology of authority is an issue of the consent versus coercion uh an issue of hegemony if you like rather than power and as i've said that working with a model that says that it un under uh, modernity, at least in the West, we have these two dominant different bases of uh, anonymity and authenticity. And I want to say they're not the only possible bases of mm. linguistic authority, obviously. And you can certainly other languages are the languages of God, for example. Uh, that is their divine origins or their di- that they speak uh, for divinity as you know, mm. their authority, for example. And that is part of contemporary life. Um, by modernity, we don't simply mean the contemporary. There are uh, in contemporary life uh, very, very different, particularly if we look at the Islamic world, very, very different uh, authority of language. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so that said, the, these two different bases, just to, to sort of repeat probably what I've already said, the, the one is uh, what we call anonymity, which may be an unfortunate term. Uh, but we chose that term to try to capture how people seem to actually hear the language as a voice from nowhere not anybody's voice in particular as if it were neutral it belongs to everyone and could be taken up by anyone and everyone and could be used to um, express any perspective that it's not positioned socially right and that what's at stake these are all ideologies these are not facts this is the way that we think about and represent um, uh, the language and assign it value. Uh, and for an anonymous language, its value is, is what reference, referential value. that you, The referential function of language is that we, we make propositions about the world. We refer to a world, right? So if an, a language is valued for its anonymity, it's valued for what can be said and everything can be said, presumably. This is obviously connected to enlightenment values right, and universalism. But by talking about it as anonymity, we're trying to capture that quality, um, which erases the speaker as a specific um, uh, biographical uh, individual. And that takes us to the alternative base. And these things are co-constructed. There are the anonymous voices or languages, and then there are the authentic ones. Authenticity is an alternate base that does give value, assign value uh, to languages, but on the basis of it being a very particular voice, very much from somewhere, and very much the voice of somebody. Um, and it, authentic languages belong only to the speakers who share that experience, is the sort of ideological representation. And that's going to mean that that language is suitable only for expressing that particular positioned um, perspective. So for authenticity, if, if for anonymity, it's, you know, the, the emphasis on, is on the referential value, what is said. With authenticity, the emphasis is on its pragmatic value, as we say, um, linguistic pragmatics, um, and who is saying it. Who is speaking in that voice is much more important than what is said. Quite literally, in some cases, when we look at some of the smaller languages around the world that now are being sort of commodified to save them, whether it's Corsican or Welsh or the various situations, uh, literally people cannot understand what is being said sometimes uh, mm-hmm. or written, the text mm-hmm. written in Basque um, type uh, font for example, but the fact of it coming from a certain place and indexing that certain place—that's that's what counts. Um, so you can already hear that that authenticity. Each of these, each of these uh, ideological bases, can be seen as limited um, from the other point of view. An anonymity will have its limitations. It's not going to speak to people in the same way as an authentic voice. It's true. But what's at stake in the, um, for most minoritized languages is the constraints that are put on them precisely by their authenticity value. So authenticity actually ends up limiting the range of a, a language and the range of its speakers in the name of valuing it. Because right? it can only present, present supposedly one particular perspective, can't be used by everybody, can't be taken up by everybody. These are the languages that we hear about uh, illicit appropriation. You know, there's so much concern about cultural and linguistic appropriation now. Nobody ever says that about the anonymous languages. Um, You don't worry about them being appropriated. You worry about them being imposed, perhaps. But illicit appropriation tells you we're talking about a language that's valued for its authenticity value and restricted in who owns it, who can use it, who can speak it. So you end up either with newcomers being sort of seen as illicit appropriators or feeling like they're betraying something. They're betraying themselves. They're becoming a different person and that they have to give up something, uh, who they are, in order to learn, in this case, Kabbalah, for example. Um, so authenticity in particular, you see a public matter really intertwined with individual's own sense of identity. Um, and really it brings a lot of personal pain and personal joy, um, to contend with a language that, um, is founded primarily whose legitimacy is founded on authenticity. So watching the play of those and the shift over time, uh, particularly for Catalan from a a foundation in authenticity, moving both deliberately in public discourse, but through a lot of processes, um, also just moving in people's own experiences towards a more anonymity-based, if you like, or a different notion of authenticity uh, is what I've really been observing happening. And that takes me to the third thing you asked about, that third tenet, which is not as well-developed, but the idea ideology of um, sociolinguistic naturalism. Yeah. And it's a foundation, I think, of all of our approach to language, probably in this, this sort of commonplace Western view. Um, we're familiar with naturalization as an ideological process, period. I mean, um, Roland Barthes, um talks about how what ideology is, is the process of um, transforming history into nature, right? Mm-hmm. Emptying some events, some, some fact of its historical development and saying, no, it's just natural. It's the way things are. Um, and, and that's very common. And you see a lot of that uh, going on in Spain all the time and everywhere else. But by sociolinguistic naturalism, I mean something beyond that general process of ideological naturalization. And this is a s- specific to language. And it's the idea that a language that is natural in some sense, is better than other languages, uh, than artificial languages. And as I wrote, we see this at least as early as Dante, right, Um, in his celebration in Latin, interestingly, but of the vernacular uh, over grammar, uh, grammatica, which is Latin, right? And he wrote that the, the vernacular is better um i 'm using john joseph 's uh, translation here because it was the first one used by the human race and because it is natural to us, whereas the other is artificial. He says the vernacular is the one that you learn at your nurse 's knee, which I like not your mother but your nurse so. uh, <laughs> um, but where is its what is its value based on its naturalness and artifice artificial the artificial hmm. is of lesser value. And the best language, then, is that which you have without effort. It's it's what's acquired at your nurse's knee, not what you study and have to learn. Um, and that sociolinguistic naturalism runs under both sides of this, the anonymity, the authenticity, in the debate over, well, which language is the best one for the public, which one has the right to know. There's a tremendous suspicion of second language learning. Uh, particularly among for the Spanish point of view, right? A second language that you had to acquire and you had to work to learn in school, mm. uh, that's artifice, that's artificial, that's secondary. That's not good. You can't express your true self in that runs this sociolinguistic naturalism. And you see the same naturalism in the debates over language policy from the Spanish point of view. Again, the Spanish critics uh, very often would recruit uh, artificiality to criticize uh, Catalan because Catalan needed the support of a language po- policy, mm. something deliberate, something willful, something imposed. That's artifice, and um, that is not good. That what comes to you naturally, supposedly, is good. Of course, there you're in Bart's territory. With what's supposedly natural is, in fact, the product of a tremendous amount of institutional work um, to constrict, to constrain, and yeah. to um, place Spanish as the only one. But It is billed as the natural, Hmm. which is our best. And Dante agreed, which is the best we could have, versus the artificial, which is always going to betray and not be um, genuine and true to the individual, the private voice, or to the public. You asked me another question about that, and and I've forgotten what you asked me to talk about. (laughs)
0: If you could uh, spell out how that ties into what you were saying about parody and the imperfect use of Catalan, where, where their use of Catalan was received as unnatural and then how did that tie with authenticity and anonymity?
1: Yes. I think in a way the parodies of the, this uh, second language speaking president Mm -hmm. epitomizes uh, the anguish over the question of giving up authenticity as the criterion Mm. uh, for for Catalan and, and embracing, can we embrace it as everyone's voice, as an anonymous voice? Because this is, what my book argues, at least, the ongoing shift that we see in Catalonia, mm-hmm. um, particularly since the turn of the millennium, uh, a real shift from uh, from a taken for granted idea that, well, of course, we would base our claims in the authenticity of Catalan. It is um, the uh, trope was it is our language, um, our proper language. They call llingua propia is a concept that's used, which translates awkwardly, but best as own language, mm-hmm. and. There was never any apology in the beginning. In 1979, there was no apology. Of course, we want to um, instate uh, Catalan as our own language. The authenticity claims were were, were clearly accepted and were granted by others on, uh, as well, by Castilian speakers. But that lost its cachet for various reasons because as it became more established, number one, um, but also given the recognition of the demographics that half the population, it wasn't literally privately, personally, their own language in the sense of first learned. And we have tremendous changes globally going on in the the whole neoliberal self and the sort of reorientation of self to cultural and linguist, any kind of practice, right, and the idea of choosing, et cetera. Um, So all of these factors um, created the shift towards moving away from accepting authenticity, uh, our own language as the legitimating value of Catalan, moving toward two different directions. One, an attempt to claim it as the universally available common language, uh, La, La Lengua Comuna, um, uh, was a real shift from our own language to our common language, meaning common among speakers from whatever background. Tremendous uh, shift in public, an attempted shift in public discourse. But also, so that was one, towards a more basis of anonymity, quite self-consciously, and secondly, towards a different understanding of authenticity, and this is what I really saw among my informants, both the young ones, the new 14-year-olds and the older, that they didn't connect self to nature It's not who you're born as. It's not the language you're born to, Um, but it is who you want to be, what you make of yourself. It is an act of will. It's a sort of a post-natural authenticity. Um, Manuel Castells calls it um, project identity. You know, identity is a project. We're very familiar with this, um, the do-it-yourself DIY uh, kind of self. And we're often critical of the sort of neoliberal A basis of that. But this is a case where um, uh, people took it up and and, and saw it as a way uh, to to rethink themselves. So you see all these moves happening, but this doesn't happen overnight, a switch from, a shift from authenticity to, or naturalist authenticity to post-naturalist or to anonymity. And it's very conflicted. And there are different positions. And that conflict was really epitomized by this president. Was not Catalan in his origins, not particularly Catalan in his in any kind of cultural or ethnic orientation, and certainly not proficiently Catalan in his language. And that was a site where these different tensions about can we get a different grasp on authenticity? Can we grant him uh, legitimacy as the representative of Catalonia speaking like this? Mm. What does it mean? What will it mean for our language? What does it mean for us? What does it mean for Catalonia? A lot of different positions were taken on that. There was outright just plain criticism. There was celebration. Mm. My um, my, uh, informant who studied anthropology and lives in England now uh, said he thought it was just Great, he said. This guy's Catalan is horrific. It's terrible, he said. And I said, I think it's great. This is what Catalonia needs. It really shows people that this is an open place. This is really this. This has come of age. This is real. Mm-hmm. That this is open. And being Catalan is not some kind of re- reactionary, parochial, closed. Uh, phenomenon Mm. and so there was that point of view as well it was a site the humor was a site where this was worked out and as Mm. i show in the book some of the humor was nasty and there's no doubt it was um it was very nasty and it traded in stigmatized visions of the working class immigrant Uh, it used the language to index uh that population in a very pejorative way Mm. others other criticisms were very different. They saw it as the language of a political class and with all the ambivalence people have about politicians. It was also used as a place to work out um, discomforts or pride or uh, embarrassed pride about uh, the Catalan language as it has been emblematized and sort of iconized, if you like um, the image of Catalan that is purveyed certainly by non-Catalan speakers, but also by many Catalans, which is that it's a very refined persnickety language compared um, to others, um, to Spanish in particular, which you can be vulgar in Spanish, but my students thought you you can't even be, you can't be vulgar in Catalan. It's a very refined language. And the humor took aim at a lot of those linguistic refinements, very um, uh, precise structures that are very difficult for Castilian speakers uh, to really anybody who's, Actually, for Catalan speakers, they're very difficult, to They're refined grammatical points. Mm. Um, and this and some of those sort of more archaic vocabulary, things like that, were really targets of the humor. Just mm. as much as the non-native speaker was, the language itself was often a target of the humor. So this sort of tension about, you know, what are we celebrating? What kind of Catalan are we celebrating? For whom? How open? How anonymous? How authentic? What kind of authenticity? Those questions you can see playing out in the humor the humorous mm-hmm. representations and the comments on
0: the It sounds like a great TV program. I wish I could speak Catalan now.
1: It's a great show. You can find it on, on, on TV3 or on YouTube. It is hilarious.
0: Yeah. I, th- I think that around about the time you're discussing this in the book, you explain where the title singular and plural comes from. Would you be able to just mention what that is meant to encapsulate as a, as a title? Sure. sure. Uh,
1: the first thing is I have to admit, I, I if you look across the... Um, titles of my books and, and articles, I, I am um, susceptible to puns. I'm not good at resisting them. Um, so this is another one. Obviously, it's a book about language. It probably is, you know, commercially not a good idea to call it singular and plural. i referring to the grammatical categories, but that's not what it refers to. Um, I picked it because those terms were coming at me in um, public discourse, uh, throughout the period, that last period of field work, which I hadn't, I hadn't heard them so much before, and they really were characteristic of this this late period, right into the into the early uh, independence movement. Um, and I took it's a version. My title is a version of the theme of the Catalan. Um, presentation as a guest of honor at the Frankfurt book fair in 2007. And there they uh, used it Catalan singular and universal mm-hmm. uh, Catalan culture, singular and universal uh, was what they used at the same time back home in Catalonia. A lot of the most interesting uh, activism around language uh, was being framed in terms of plurality um, plurilingualism, plural languages, plural society, pluriethnic, etc., was uh, the term that was used to uh, encapsulate the kind of sociolinguistic situation, the kind of society that the progressive activists were aiming for. And I'm thinking here in particular of something, the platform for the language, platform for la uh takes this stand, a very progressive stand and very overt. So these terms singular and plural were in play. And I thought they uh, encapsulate um, this new vision of Catalonia, this post-natural authentic vision of Catalonia that people at all levels uh, could be found trying to move toward. And there the idea is that Catalonia and Catalan are one and the same time singular and plural. By singular, they mean a couple of things, but they mean unique. Singularity is its uniqueness. That Catalan uh, distinguishes Catalonia. Not that it marks its essence so much. That was the old view of our own language. It, you know, is the essence and the spirit of the people. Mm. No, this is more singularity, almost like a trademark. And it fits in with nation branding that is so widely accepted and practiced around the world. Now we have governments paying a lot of money, um, to, um, uh, corporate consultants, uh, advertising consultants to brand them, branding Argentina, branding Scotland, branding, you know, there's a lot of brand work done. Mm. Um, and you can do it without shame. It's what modern contemporary, um, nation states do branding Switzerland. Stuff. So, um, Catalan was came to be featured more as that which distinguishes that, which marks Catalonia as unique, uh, and as integral as integrated okay, in the world. And in Frank, at Frankfurt, that was the argument. Um, how are you going to distinguish Catalan culture and Catalan literature from Spanish literature worldwide? Okay. Because Spanish literature is huge and people already had a vision of it. Uh, and in fact, the, much of Spanish literature, of course, contemporary literature uh, is and modern literature, uh, its worldwide reputation is based on Latin American uh, art, uh, authors, right, and artists. And in fact, the Latin American boom of the 1960s and 70s, um, Vargas Llosa, García Márquez, uh, Cortázar, Fuentes, all these, but particularly um, García Márquez and Vargas Llosa, that boom was actually launched in Barcelona, <laughs> Catalonia and Barcelona are really um, uh, headquarters, have been for a long time, of uh, Spanish publishing industry. Mm. And that boom was launched from there. So this is background to say there's a brand. There was a brand for modern Spanish literature that was well-known that actually has historical roots in Catalonia. Mm. And the question was, how are you going to get a new product out there and distinguish it? Catalan literature needs to be understood and branded as a distinct niche in order to generate a new audience that isn't going to look and say, oh, I've been there and done that. I know Spanish. I know that literature. So that was the argument uh, for why you feature the Catalan medium uh, authors and not the Spanish medium authors who are from Barcelona, who are well-known, who are good, who are important. But why it was time to feature Catalan? Well, because it marks the singularity. Okay, This is a particularly commercial commodified version of it mm. but that's the kind of idea of why we rally around why we want to keep uh Catalan because not just because it is ours but it's because it what's it's what makes us special different unique at the same time it was a recognition of that's not the only thing that's going on here and this is a plural society and we want plurality we want to recognize the plurality of languages this is a very utopian idea. We'll recognize that plurality and have one common language that marks our singularity. Um, and so plural became the byword. Plural was really important to replace by. Instead of being bilingual, the argument was for let's recognize that we're plurilingual. Mm. And there's a lot of politics behind that. Um, basically, the argument is that the Advocacy of bilingual policy and bilingualism has long been used basically to um, um, preserve monolingualism in Spanish in Catalonia. Mm-hmm. A bilingual policy is understood to be one that would preserve the right of a Spanish speaker to remain a monolingual Spanish speaker mm-hmm. and not have to learn or use Catalan. Whether that's exactly true of how everybody was using it or not, it's certainly true of how. Some people were using it, some politicians and all. And the bilingualism always seemed to imply uh, a position in which Catalan would be one down uh, from Castilian, which would always be in a superordinate position in a bilingual setting. Plurilingualism acknowledges Castilian, Spanish, but only as one among many non-Catalan mother tongues that are represented in Spain, in Catalonia. Uh, this infuriated uh Castilianists, of course, that to be only one among many was not the idea uh, for Spain. So there was a lot of polit- political positioning between advocating plurilingualism mm. versus bilingual. So that was the new watchword among progressives and Catalanist progressives, I should say, was plural. So what's encapsulated is the struggle between rethinking authenticity and trying to rethink your way from a, a naturalist authenticity to some other basis for legitimacy.
0: Uh, I just wanted to follow up on a couple of ideas that you've mentioned while talking about parts one and two of the book, um, and one of them is to ask you about uh, cosmopolitanism in the Catalan context. So you say in one chapter that the term historically has been a, uh, used in opposition to nationalism and universalism, and you've mentioned echoes in politics in other countries and i can recognize in britain um the notion of multiculturalism which has been criticized from the from the political right for, for erasing british identity uh banal identity and and from um it's also been criticized for creating social silos by you know fragmenting society so i just wondered if you could talk about that notion of cosmopolitanism in a catalan context what does it mean to catalonians
1: uh-huh. ah, well, what does it mean to anyone is really the question and sort of it can come up for grabs over the last uh, couple of decades i think but yeah um cosmopolitanism if you the basic is what citizen of the world mm-hmm. right um and i just want to say that historically catalan catalonia has always seen itself as being much more cosmopolitan than the rest of Spain, than Spain as an entity. And that was usually granted to it um, because Catalonia, starting from the 19th century at least, was um, uh, industrial, um, had a bourgeoisie rather than the landed aristocracy as its um, political base, um, uh, urban, Eurocentric, poised where it was, very outward looking, very Eurocentric, and you know, as opposed to Spain, which is seen as backwards and closed, etc. So that was the, the kind of common stereotypes which were accepted. And in part of Catalan pride and a part of early Catalan nationalisms was this view of this cosmopolitan, very European uh, Catalonia. But by the 1990s, again, this is when the um, Popular Party came in in Spain. We see cosmopolitanism being used as a cudgel by Castilianists by Spain against um, Catalonia, and this came out around the uh, Olympics of 1992, which were in Barcelona, which were a big turning point. And there you saw the overt debate fighting over. Um, Uh, um, This narrow-minded, parochial, backward uh, place called Catalonia that wanted to impose its language on the Olympics, was how it was put, versus the cosmopolitanism of Spain. And Vargas Llosa, the Peruvian author Mario Vargas Llosa, was a big proponent. He had been a great fan of Barcelona back when it was cosmopolitan, as he put it, when they took him in, when he was in exile. But now, horrors, it was um, turning its back on its uh, cosmopolitanism and becoming parochial because people asked for some place for Catalan in the Olympics. Uh, and this, so you have this debate emerge in the 90s and become very important as the turn away from authenticity towards uh, anonymity as a legitimate basis um, for the for linguistic authority became established. And you get a, a struggle. Now it's not a struggle over who's more authentic. Are you authentically Spanish or authentically uh, Catalan? In that period. That's back now. Uh, Spanish authenticity is very strong um, uh, theme in the current uh, conflict, uh, but it wasn't. Um, and so there was a struggle over well, who's really cosmopolitan and can you be cosmopolitan in Catalan? And on the basis of the traditional understandings of uh, the limitations of authentic languages and local languages, the Spanish position was simply, "No, don't be ridiculous. It's not possible," uh, and that one who speaks one who speaks Spanish is, by virtue of speaking Spanish, apparently more cosmopolitan than one who speaks Catalan, because Spanish is a language used around the world. And this led to a, an overt debate, mostly by uh, the Catalan side, trying to specify what do you mean by cosmopolitanism and as i uh say in the book it seemed to fit in very much with the debate in the social sciences and i think it was triggered that debate by exactly what you say the fear of multiculturalism mm. uh the fear of of um the um, possible results of that policy which people were reading into the post 9 uh, 11 events and period right and so you i do see as i read through the social science literature on cosmopolitanism cosmopolitanism uh that it it, it is a, a floating signifier that seems to have different meanings depending on where people are coming from and what debate they put right. it in so for many people cosmopolitanism is simply universalism basically a kantian kind of enlightenment you know citizen of the world means use global english i suppose would be the um, you know the ultimate uh, linguistic outcome of that, that's the way to show that you're cosmopolitanism you, you show that you're cosmopolitan. on the other hand you have attempts by many different theorists to come up with other notions of a, a rooted cosmopolitanism vernacular cosmopolitanism cosmopolitanism from below um, that reject this sort of either or position you only use a universal language, culture and identity or you only your are a blinkered local, to say, no, you get your cosmopolitanism through valuing your tradition, local, et cetera, and that of others. And the way that you show you value that of others is to actually learn some of it and to be able to move comfortably through different worlds, not only in your own language, which is our privilege, English, right, and in your own point of view or Spanish, but actually learning and engaging uh, with others. And so that depends of what do we mean by cosmopolitanism and do we um, place it against um, localism or particularism uh, as a broader view or do we place it against universalism and there are many important British theorists who've done that Paul Gilroy writes about, writes about that. Um, cosmopolitanism is simply a mask, a guise for you know, an, another instantiation of imperial imperialistic universalism that you, you need to get our culture and our language so that you can um, be cosmopolitan like us. And that fight was being fought, it is still being fought out in Catalonia, trying to defend, I think, a more nuanced, broader understanding of what it means to be cosmopolitanism that, yes, is multicultural in some sense, but not not in that programmatic sense that has been rejected. It's not about being narrow and isolated and contained within your own community. It's about ranging across communities with a genuine appreciation uh, of them and a genuine attempt to meet them on their own ground
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, rather than insisting they join yours. So we see that struggle, and I think some, some very explicit articulations of it mm-hmm. in those Kataman public debates that I looked at in Chapter
0: 2. I just wondered whether, and and in light of the kind of um, commodification of Catalan language and Catalan culture, um, what it means for a culture to be bilingual and whether bilingualism or plurilingualism is directly linked to a kind of outward facing general kind of pluralism that relates to social liberalism. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. that's a good question yeah um, let me I wanted to just one caveat because I'm the one that brought up the commodification of Catalan and I just want to um, put a nuance on that there's a lot of talk now about and writing and research on the commodification of minority languages and I just want to underline that um, the Catalan case doesn't fit very well with most of those mm-hmm. it's not an example of that because most of those uh, um, languages not being used at all for its referential value yeah. but is simply a, you know as I said a trademark uh, the commod- Commodification aspect of Kaplan is the lesser aspect of it here and there. To the extent they're commodifying it, it is in order to sustain it as uh, a language of actual communication, referential communication, etc. So it's not one that is relying primarily on commodification because it has – I don't think I ever said this in the beginning, and I should have said it. Catalan, The Catalan situation is really uh, unusual uh, around the world, not only because of its uh, economic power uh, of the speakers and all, but because of the very high level of language maintenance across the generations, even under very adverse uh, conditions. where you really have a very high percentage of the population uh, who uh, inherited the language at home actually using it and keeping it Mm. it is it is not something that was lost and has to be resurrected or revived through Mm. a commodification etc it's a a vibrant real um uh, languages are real too but it's vibrant in everyday life in Mm. people's um, lives so that's one thing um this question of okay well so is being bilingual itself and having a bilingual culture does that uh is that a mark of being more open, et cetera? And I'd say this is precisely a question of language ideology itself, mm-hmm. right? That's it's how it's construed, right? Um, what we would look at is how multilingualism uh, and the inclusive perspective are uh, represented as linked, and I think they are represented as linked. It is a Catalan claim; they do want to say we we are by definition broader uh, than you are because we're bilingual. We're the bilinguals here, minimally bilingual. And Spaniards are much more typically, and certainly the Spanish political leaders are monolingual. Mm. Mariano Rajoy is absolutely monolingual uh, as far as anyone knows. You will not hear him speak in any language but Spanish. In any in, in, to media, etc., uh, and the Catalans are very proud that their representatives, their presidents, routinely can hold press conferences, impromptu press conferences, in four languages, mm. and they do take that as a one-to-one link to say, "Look, by definition, mm. we are more open mm. to the world." But that's a reading; that's an ideological reading. Sure. For my individual informants, the ones who were proud to have mm. become bilingual, etc., for them, it is not. I am open-minded because I am bilingual. It is I am bilingual because I am open-minded mm. because I am a mature, open person who is not going to close myself to new experiences. I learned Catalan, and so for them, it indexes. They are associated, mm. but not in that causal. The causal arrow is reversed. If you like, mm. in other words, because I became a grown-up who's not afraid of multiplicity of new things of change. I can use this language Mm -hmm. and I understand it's not a threat to me. Mm -hmm. I can incorporate it as a part of me and I'm happy with it. So it's a different kind of linking and it's not an automatic claim that I know that I am broader minded um, by virtue because I learned the languages, but I learned the language because I'm broader minded. So I think there is that representation, but it's a slightly different view. We certainly you see around the world that there's this linguistic ideology that says elite multilingualism. Broadens the mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is never credited um, to subordinated groups. Immigrants yeah, yeah. who have to come and learn the language are not given the same credit usually yeah. for having a broader perspective and broader point of view. So it's the variation in the rep- ideological representations that I find especially interesting.
0: Mm. I would like to ask you to talk a bit about part three of the book as well, the final part of the book. And one thing, again, I'm going to ask you personally, what what it was like, you already kind of gave a hint when you talked about going back to high school, sitting on the steps day after day, what was surprising? And and what was strange about repeating the same method in the same place with that amount of time?
1: Yeah, it it was an interesting experience. And it's very hard to put my finger on what was this, what was different, you know, Mm -hmm. but um, yeah I was kind of astonished that it was so recognizable 20 mm. years later I really felt like I was in the same classroom I think okay. there was maybe a fresh coat of paint uh, some of, some of the teachers were the same um, mm. the kids were a little different in some ways or a lot rowdier on the whole I'd say uh, and there were some transformations but I was struck by how much of the the physical plant and the teaching style and some of the student orientations were, were the same. Mm-hmm. Now there were differences, um, both in the kind that I was there to look at, um, which was language practices, but also just in the high school culture. Mm-hmm. Um, there had been a big school reform. Things are very, um, uh, obligatory education is organized in a very different way, uh, now and, and then in the earlier study. So there was not a direct equivalence, but there were some changes, um, in the way things were done, including the introduction of um, pull-out classes. Um, Not everyone was in the same classroom all the time. uh, And some people went to, uh, um, they had a welcoming class for uh, immigrants, uh, where they got uh, sort of slowly integrated and acclimated. And they also had pull-out classes for, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, non-traditional class structures for kids who weren't doing so well. In school. Uh, the other things I noted were ones that struck me as a, what I would say from my point of view as an Americanization of the school, the high school experience. There were a lot more kids visibly uh, failing and disengaged, more like the back of a, because this is a mostly working class school and a public school, and it looked a lot more like what I see in, um, had seen in American high schools where the kids with their head down on the table, on the desk, and that was it. Um, There was much more uh, subcultural self-distinction. Now, there used to be 20 years before there had been Catalans and Castilians. There had been good students and bad. Um, Maybe there had been pijos and whatever there were. they are sort of preppies or posh. Um, But there hadn't been an elaboration of other things. There's quite a subcultural elabor- elaboration on the basis of style. Skaters and indies and um, preppies and you know, uh, freakies and punks and uh, and people that was their, the fundament of their claim to who they were. Rather than Yeah, I'm Castilian or I'm Mm. Catalan, which was the base divide. It was, no, 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 we're skaters uh, or we're preppies. They were proud to say uh, we're preppies, which we hadn't been before. Um, So, And also there was um, uh, the high school was taking over more of their lives. Uh, In the United States, high school, secondary school is a totalizing Mm -hmm. institution. Um, The sociolinguist Penny Eckert has written a lot about this very, very insightfully. Uh, and how it affects language use, among other things. Uh, And it was not a totalizing institution um, uh, back in the 70s and the 80s um, in Spain. Kids went home for lunch. Kids, you didn't do any extracurricular activities at school. And that had changed, and the school was encroaching more, you could say, from one point of view, or providing more opportunities for sports, for extracurricular organizations, et cetera. So I did see a change in that is important, I and mean, it was interesting to see, mm. but it's a, a change in the kids' understandings of their social location right? mm. and how they would see themselves and define themselves and interact with others. And that did seem to turn up a little bit. I think that has something to do with the subtle changes I saw in linguistic practices, mm-hmm. uh, which is what I was there to look at. I wasn't there to evaluate education. I was there because that's a good place to watch kids talk to each other mm. and interact interact with authorities and then with each other. And similarities, differences, I found in both periods of the study, uh, no matter what the language policy is, you find mixed practices uh, among kids. So the policy now is uh, Catalan medium instruction. Uh, That does not mean you do not hear Castilian all over the place, including in the classroom, used by teachers Uh, But sometimes, uh, certainly by students who preferentially, some students, except in their Catalan class, and some of them, even there, used Castilian most of the time. On the playground, the patio, as they call it, um, lots and lots of Castilian, lots of mixed practices. So there's a lot of railing and worry about Catalan policy, Catalan medium education, brainwashing kids, they actually say from Madrid, Um, never thinking that a Spanish medium education might brainwash kids. That's the banality. But anyway, a lot of worry about that. But in fact, as I said before, policies don't come directly out of people's mouths. And these kids were um, devising lots and lots of different ways of integrating Catalan in some cases, um, but still using Castilian, et cetera, et cetera. The most remarkable difference I saw was that now there were working class kids from bad neighborhoods of Castilian origins who were using Catalan both in the classroom and socially mm. and I had not seen much of that at all 20 years before because they simply didn't have enough access to it to be able to learn it well enough to be able mm. to use it now there are different choices there are plenty of working-class kids still speaking almost only Spanish uh, some of the one of them marvelously espousing you know her support for independence but in Spanish <laughs> uh, so all kinds of positionings right but it, now working-class kids were among um, those who learned Catalan as a second language and actually used it, used it very effectively, including for social purposes. Um, so that was probably the major transformation I saw. I also saw more acceptance of being addressed in Catalan, even if you responded in Spanish, et cetera. They all had there were a lot of different solutions to the question of language etiquette. Mm. Um, more variety than I had seen before, particularly among girls who had been kind of normative and uniform in the past in mm. their groups. I saw a lot more variation. Uh, in the in the later year, um, so uh, overall a pattern of increased move toward Catalan, but many, many different and unpredictable ways of incorporating.
0: Mm, sounds like a bit of a microcosm of the political context and popular discourse or media discourse uh, generally. And what you saw of the high school now was more towards the totalizing end of the spectrum where it was encroaching in all areas of of students' lives, which is a kind of a neoliberal model as well. But within that, you've got the increasing tendency for, for people to view themselves as in charge of their own identity making themselves up and um, proliferation of identity super pluralism of of um social types within that so it kind of um yeah. links a lot of the ideas together within that context i think um i wanted to say thank you very much indeed for being so generous with your time and talking um in such interesting ways about this fascinating set of uh, interlinking ideas uh.
1: i just want to thank you john for your time and you've been really generous with your time and I, I think it's fair to let people know that i had imagined that i wouldn't have very much to say and that i certainly wouldn't go on <laughs> at length and in fact it's very been very enjoyable for me to, and you have uh, made me realize i certainly had a lot more to say than i guessed i hope that um Uh, it's been of some interest and I apologize for the the length of of much of it but I um, thoroughly enjoyed this chance to to talk more about these ideas and I really appreciate some of your your uh, questions and your excellent summaries of what I was trying to say.
0: It's been my pleasure thank you very much indeed.